Hey, thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive review for me in iTunes. You can also check out my all-too-rarely-updated website at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. We're going to work a little backwards in time in today's story. Let's start with the death of Joan of Arc. She was burned at the stake on May 30th, 1431. This is the widely known method of execution for witches, and Joan had claimed to have had visions that she said were from God, which her enemies just easily could claim came from Satan instead. Why was burning the method of choice? Just tradition? The various trendy methods of capital punishment seem to become associated with their time. The burning of witches, the guillotine during the French Revolution, lynchings in the American South, and, of course, crucifixion in Roman territories. Our movie today does end with the burning of Joan of Arc. Even though the movie is from 1928, it pulls no punches and takes its time. Joan walks into position. She's scared but resolved. The executioner, as he's tying her up, drops one end of the rope, and she bends over to pick it up for him. The fire is lit, and it takes a long time to work its way up to Joan. She starts to sweat from the heat. She never cries out. We see the flames around her lower half. The pain is undeniable. We see it in her face, but she still doesn't scream. A riot breaks out in the outraged crowd. You have burned a saint, one man cries out. The flames have completely engulfed her now. Her body is seen in silhouette through the light of the fire as it turns into a blackened husk. In reality, they repeated the process, making sure her burnt corpse was seen and then burning it again, and then again until only ash remained, which was dumped into the river Seine. They didn't want anyone claiming her bones as religious relics. The movie, The Passion of Joan of Arc, shows us only the time period of the trial and execution of Joan. And what I just find fascinating is that the nearly 600-year-old trial transcripts still exist and were used as source material for the screenplay. The Danish writer-director took the 18 months' worth of interrogations of Joan and put them into one trial scene with follow-up interviews in her cell. They ask her how old she is, and she says she thinks she's 19. They skeptically ask her about her belief that she was sent from God. She says she was born to save France. So you believe God hates the English, they ask her? She says, I don't know about that. Just that they'll be driven from France, except for those who die here. They ask her what St. Michael looks like, whom she claims appeared before her. They ask her why she dresses like a man. In fact, her refusal to switch to traditional women's clothes in the film made me wonder if Joan of Arc could have been a medieval member of the LGBT community, and indeed, there are theories to this effect online, but it's also theorized that she preferred men's clothing in prison to reduce the risk of rape at the hands of her captors. When she dressed similarly before her capture, French soldiers argued on her behalf that it was simply for the purposes of disguise, and, and there seemed nothing to them to be untoward about it. Either way, her judges attempted to use it as evidence of her unholiness. And this was an ecclesiastical court. The main judge was Bishop Pierre Cochon, and we'll come back to him soon. A few of those present do believe Joan's claims, with one man even kneeling before her, saying, For me, she is a saint. 
The last thing they ask her before the court is adjourned is whether God made promises to Joan. At first, she tries to argue that this is irrelevant to their case against her, but the judges disagree and say she must answer. They ask if God had promised to release her. She says he has, but that she doesn't know when. Let me note here that this film makes constant use of close-ups. It seems like half the movie is Joan's tearful face, but it works. It's very powerful. She gives a great performance. The actress is Renee Falconetti, a French stage actress, and this film was the second of only two movies she ever did. She was about 16 years too old, but she did an amazing job. The rest of the film between the courtroom scene and the execution is the judges trying to get her to sign a confession that says she made up everything about being sent from God. They present her with a forged letter from the French king trying to convince her to cooperate. They then threaten her with torture, but they're also very adamant that she remains safe and healthy as it wouldn't do them any good to have her die quietly in captivity. They kind of need this to all be public. She develops a fever and they bleed her because, of course, they thought that was a thing then. And we get to see it. They use the stunt arm, but... They cut into a vein on her forearm and blood spurts and then arcs out like a tiny water fountain as they collect it in a pan. I cringe just thinking about it. I guess that was movie making 90 years ago. Forget special effects. Just do the thing if you can. They continue trying to negotiate with her. She's a, she's a very devout Catholic and they deny her attending mass or taking the sacraments until she confesses or at least changes into women's clothing. Finally, when they take her out to the stake where she's to be burned, She does allow the priest to guide her hand on the paper to make her signature, and she is sentenced to life in prison. But she quickly relents and says it was only a moment of weakness, that she only signed the paper because she was scared of being burnt. And a a priest, who is mostly on her side, asks, How can you still believe? She says, God's ways are not our ways, but yes, I am his child. He asks then about the great victory she's been predicting. And she says, that will be her martyrdom. And and what about the release you predicted? Death, she says. He does then give her her last rites and the sacraments. She's then taken to the stake and executed, as I detailed earlier. So this film itself has an interesting history. The French were upset that a Danish director was the one tackling the project, and he fought against censors over the final cut of the film. Joan of Arc was in the news at the time, as it was just in 1920 that she was officially canonized as a saint by the Roman Catholic Church, and her trial transcripts were published in 1921. For decades, it was thought that the director's cut of the film was lost forever after the negative of the master was destroyed in a fire, but in 1981, a copy was discovered in a janitor's closet of a mental institution in Norway, and that's how the version we can find today came to us. The film had been an immediate critical success. Here's a quote from the New York Times at the time. As a film work of art, this takes precedence over anything that has so far been produced. It makes worthy pictures of the past look like tinsel shams. It fills one with such intense admiration that other pictures appear but trivial in comparison. Of course, this seems hyperbolic to us now, but remember, this is 1928. We're not even yet in the era of talkies. And here's a critic who is probably himself older than the format of movies realizing just what this new art form might be capable of. Roger Ebert later wrote, You cannot know the history of silent film unless you know the face of Renee Maria Falconetti. The film has a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes and is currently ranked number 185 all-time on IMDb. 
So why exactly was Joan of Arc on trial in the first place? Witchcraft, right? She heard voices? Not really. While she did claim to be sent from God, this was really nothing more than a political assassination posing as a heresy trial. Let's rewind again and quickly recap the Hundred Years' War between England and France. Edward III, Longshanks' grandson, the kid Braveheart is pretending is William Wallace's, he wasn't, decides he should be the king of France too, as he is descended from a previous French king or two. He invaded France, this was more than 90 years before Joan's trial. It was bold and the English won several major victories early on. Things got so bad in France, they fell into a civil war while still trying to fend off the English. Time passed, kings die, and France was able to reclaim a lot of the English gains in France. England then had success once again under Henry V, who also liked the idea of being king of France. Kings on both sides died again, and Henry V's young son, Henry VI, was to be crowned king of France while still just a baby. The French weren't fans of this idea, but might is right, and English forces propping up the boy had been kicking their butts. The French heir to the throne was the teenage Charles VII. He held the title Dauphin, which literally means dolphin, a reference to his family's coat of arms, but meant he was heir to the throne. He was his father's fifth son, but his older brothers had all died without siring children of their own, and in fact, none of them even reached the age of 20. The French themselves were divided with a substantial portion backing the English claim to their own throne. Hope was fading fast. The city of Orléans was one of the last cities to hold out against the English and remain loyal to Charles VII. The English began to lay siege against it in 1428, and basically the entire French monarchy hung in the balance with no real hope of victory. Then this girl showed up. Joan was from the peasant class. Her parents owned a little land, and her father seems to have been somewhat prominent in their village, responsible for collecting taxes and stuff like that. She's not from a place called Ark, and the name Joan of Ark in English is kind of just how we've come to call her over the years for a bunch of boring little reasons with historical guesses and French quirks of language and blah, blah, blah. She said she had her first vision when she was 13. She claimed saints would appear to her, telling her to drive out the English and help crown the Dauphin. When she was 16, she started trying to gain an audience with the Dauphin, basically just by asking soldiers to take her to him. She was just really persistent and convincing and worked her way up the chain of command, you know, asking one soldier and then his boss and his boss until finally she did get a meeting with Charles himself about a year later in Chinon, the setting of The Lion in Winter. She did make a strong impression on the Dauphin. Again, here was just this very devout Catholic girl saying God has sent her to help. Everyone thought it was a lost cause anyway, so what do they have to lose by listening to her? She basically just asked if she could travel with the army, and people donated all the armor and weapons and the horses she needed. Here's a quote from the Wikipedia article. Only a regime in the final straits of desperation would pay any heed to an illiterate farm girl who claimed that the voice of God was instructing her to take charge of her country's army and lead it to victory. The government did a thorough background check of her just in case their enemies tried to say she was less than a true believer and sent by the devil. By April 1429, a commission found her to be, quote, a good Christian possessed of the virtues of humility, honesty, and simplicity, unquote. Later that same month, she arrived at Orléans under siege by the British at the time. Now, how involved she actually was once she was there is disputed. It, it seems very unlikely that an untrained girl was out there killing English soldiers, and, and she might have just been a glorified good luck charm. But then again... 
if they bought into the idea that she was literally sent by God, that would have been extremely powerful at the time. And it was said that the leaders took her advice, believing it was divinely inspired. And the reason we're still talking about her nearly 600 years later is because it worked. The French started winning. From the moment Joan entered the scene, decades of mostly English victories became mostly French victories. The Hundred Years' War went on for another 22 years after her death, but by the end, France, though they didn't exactly win, had regained their autonomy in nearly all the lands the English had claimed in France over the duration of the whole war, with Charles VII crowned during Joan's lifetime and reigning for another 30 years. It's unclear whether it occurred before or after the victory at Orléans, but while she was praying alone in a chapel that year, Bill and Ted's phone booth landed on the altar and she traveled with them to 1980s San Dimas, California. I like to think that this was before the battle and that this excellent adventure helped to inspire her further. And presumably she was returned to the same point in time as there is no record of her disappearance. Okay, moving on. Over the course of the next year, there are several examples of Joan giving suggestions that aided the continued success of the French. In May of 1430, the group she was with was ambushed by the French side loyal to the English. Joan was captured and turned over to English custody, who took her to Rouen, France, the English headquarters in France. There were several rescue attempts, but they were unsuccessful. So you can see how all this is set up for a farce of a trial. Her judges were all on the side of the English, and she was their enemy and had been on the literal battlefield. As I mentioned before, the main judge was Bishop Pierre Cochon, he had played a role earlier in his life in trying to bring the Western Schism to an end. I mentioned it briefly last week, the time when two men claimed to be the rightful pope. As the French started winning after Joan's intervention, Cochon's diocese were threatened as he was known to favor the English. He moved to Rouen where he helped to negotiate for Joan to be brought after her capture. It was the goal of the trial which he oversaw to discredit Joan of Arc and in doing so discredit Charles VII. They tried unsuccessfully to dig up rumors about her from back home, and the rest of the trial proceeded as we've already discussed. Now, the aftermath of all this. It took a while, but Joan's trial was reopened two decades later, and she was exonerated as a martyr, and it was Bishop Cochon who was believed to have committed the real heresy. He was already dead himself by this time, but was posthumously excommunicated by the Pope. The net effect for the English over this whole war, however, was a shift in their identity, they didn't really gain all those lands in France, but ever since William the Conqueror in 1066, the ruling class in England had this French flair to it. They mostly spoke French and ruled over an Anglo-Saxon country called England, but they were kind of separate from it. By, by the end of the Hundred Years' War, England's self-identity was more unified. They were English top to bottom, that is, from the monarchy to the peasants, in a way that they just weren't before. Napoleon declared Joan a national symbol of France in 1803, and as I said, she was canonized as a saint in 1920. There are several other movies about Joan of Arc that definitely cover more ground, but 1928's The Passion of Joan of Arc remains the most critically acclaimed and is definitely another movie vegetable for you. I believe it's in the public domain now, though the version I found on YouTube didn't have English title cards, so I ended up having to watch it on Vimeo. Elsewhere in the world around this time, the Incan city of Machu Picchu is constructed in the Andes Mountains as the Hundred Years' War came to an end. During the retrial of Joan of Arc, the Byzantine Empire finally came to an end as Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Empire. It had existed for over a thousand years and began, if you'll recall, as the eastern half of the Roman Empire. The Ottomans will rule Constantinople slash Istanbul until after the First World War. 
A couple years after the fall of Constantinople, the War of the Roses in England would be well underway, but we'll get to that in more detail later. We're actually going to hit pause in our journey for a bit now. I am going on hiatus now. I've been having a lot of fun with this project. It's been a lot more time-consuming than I had anticipated. I launched on Election Day 2017, and I think it'll be appropriate to kick off our next 25 episodes this November on Election Day. I know it's a ways off, but that should give me a chance to uh, give myself another big head start. I was down to the wire getting all these done in time to release on a regular schedule, and it allowed me some time to work on other projects. So thank you so much for making it this far. I may throw out a random episode here and there during the break. Otherwise, we'll see you again this fall. The current plan is to start back up during the War of the Roses with Laurence Olivier's take on Shakespeare's take on English King Richard III. Bye for now.